From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Talking about a group of more than 30 BC retailers, trade associations, and many other organizations, they have all come together and they are calling for a coordinated government response for repeat offenders and other offenders they say are behind a wave of theft, vandalism, and ongoing violent crime. The Save Our Streets Coalition says the need is immediate to address the critical needs and to meet the threats to staff safety, the rising security cost and the ongoing community impact. Well, the members of the group include Lululemon, Save On Foods, the Surrey Board of Trade, Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers and London Drugs, just to name a few, and Clint Malman, President and Chief Operating Officer of London Drugs, is joining us once again to talk a bit more about this. Clint, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, this is certainly is once again drawing attention to what employees are dealing with, what businesses are dealing with. What specifically is uh, Save Our Streets, SOS? What specifically is the coalition calling for? Joe, Save Our Streets is a coalition of people that representing throughout the province, whether they be in retail, food restaurant associations, service industries, uh, downtown business associations, citizens groups from throughout the province that have banded together to amplify our voice to make change happen to prevent the issues that are resulting in violence, theft, vandalism, and general uh, disorder on the streets where people aren't feeling safe in their own neighborhoods and uh, where they shop and where they live. And the whole goal is to ask government to act. We're not trying to be prescriptive. We have governments that are elected, accountable, have the access to budgets and the responsibility on behalf of citizens to take action, and we don't see that action being taken, and the seriousness of what's going on being reflected in what they say they're doing. Do you think this will change that? We sure hope. Um, You know, we have, when you start to add up all the citizens groups throughout the province, all the retailers, all the service industries, we're talking hundreds of hundreds of thousands of voters that are intensely interested in wanting change. This is a non-political, non-aligned group. Our whole goal is regardless of whichever level of government, uh, municipal, provincial, or federal, to uh, ask those that are responsible for making change to come together, stop blaming each other, and pull together the resources necessary to make change. One of the comments made when this was announced earlier today was, and you and I talked about this the last time you were on the program, and the fact that it is getting difficult for uh, retailers, stores like London Drugs and others to even attract employees because they're becoming afraid and they don't know what they're going to have to be dealing with, whether it's violent shoplifters or or, uh, people that are coming into the stores and and putting them in danger. Uh, There was a comment, I don't know if you made this comment, but some Somebody brought up the issue of, of getting to the point where uh, the idea of employees wearing stab-proof vests is not so far-fetched. That's right, Joe. I never thought in my career that I would ever have be presented with a budget to equip some of our employees with stab 
proof vests. You know, right now we it's really come to that point, and that shows you the level of violence. I mean, we're, we've been asked by some of our loss prevention officers, professional officers registered under the provincial acts. Uh, with high levels of training, that even with the verbal de-escalation skills, they go through the non-confrontational way that they are are being attacked and abused, and that's not acceptable. And sadly, that's what it's become to is that this the accountability that criminals that constantly commit these acts feel no consequences of hurting another person um, because they know there's no consequences to them. So are there employees with London Drugs that are wearing stab-proof vests? I've just been asked to consider this, and we're testing these vests now, but it will have to sadly be rolling out here in the next month or so. And like you said, you never thought that you would be at the point where, and I'm sure people hearing that as well, uh, have got to be thinking, well, surely that is not, yes, of course we want people to be safe, but surely that is not a long-term strategy. That's exactly it, Jill. And there's no point and no need for it to have got as bad as it has. These are complex issues that like all crime issues, but we need governments to act and we need them to stop blaming each other, uh, to come together with the right resources. They've hired the best of professionals to advise them and we're asking them to pull that together as, as quickly as possible before it's too late. You know, I think that the fact that we're even having to talk about it and that uh, Diverse groups of people from across the province are having to band together to have their voice heard illustrates the problem that we're facing. We have a crisis situation on our hands. We believe that the politicians and their advisors are out of step with how the average person is feeling on the street and certainly the average retail employee and that we need them to understand that this is urgent and they have to act now before it's too late. Where do you think the attention needs to go first? And I know this was outlined a a bit, but we do often hear governments say, well, if we're talking about repeat offenders and this revolving door in the courts, that's the court system, which is a separate entity. Uh, Is it that decriminalization has gone forward, but without treatment, without resources to back it up? Where would you like to see the focus be? Well, I think it's about coordination, Jill. Um, At the end of the day, the governments all have access to each other and they know exactly what their constitutional and legal responsibilities are. Laws change. uh, Constitutions change to protect people. And that is what we need governments to pull together and stop blaming each other so we can act Uh, they can act on our behalf as citizens in a coordinated, thoughtful approach. You know, we continue to see and hear, regardless of where it is in the province, that the singular approach, such as what you've mentioned, the decriminalization of drugs, uh, different policing approaches, different approaches to homelessness, different approaches to mental health services, addiction services, and even the judicial reform. And that system clearly isn't working. And that's what we're saying as government. We need you to listen to your citizens. What you're doing isn't working, and we need you to pull together, as we've elected you to do, to make sure that our streets are safe by working through these very complex issues in a very consistent, 
and a thoughtful approach that will actually see change. You know, we, we have fantastic, I, I don't know of a retailer out there that doesn't say that the police are fantastic in their local communities. They're doing whatever they can. But, man, we sure hear the frustration uh, from our people. And, and, you know, you would have to get the police to speak to their own perspective. So this is when, as you've said, it's not okay when someone has committed many, many crimes that they continue to come in without consequence and can continue to commit those crimes and certainly violent crimes and other forms of vandalism and theft that ultimately impact our street safety. Uh, one other comment that was made, and I think it was you that said, that said this during the news conference today, that we are past the tipping point and it is going to take decades decades to correct this if it is not dealt with now. Uh, do you think that, that, it, that it can be dealt with faster now? I mean, I think a lot of people would hear that and, and think it's already going to take a long time to correct the position we're at now. Joe, we've been watching with great interest in communicating to politicians and justice officials, this degradation that we've seen happening in the USA, and uh, most notably here on the West Coast, because we share so much culture and climate, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle, where their downtowns have really been hollowed out, and that businesses have left downtowns. And of course, that's led to even more crime, uh, more sense of safety. Um, Governments have put you know, millions and millions of dollars in infrastructure in downtown, such as for sporting events, for other entertainment events, but people don't feel safe going to those. And of course, in those governments, they're having to throw a huge amount of public resources to try and reverse that trend. And we believe that we are on that path here in all the communities in British Columbia. It's not a downtown Vancouver, not a downtown Victoria issue. And that's what we're worried about, that if we don't act now, we will be past a tipping point. Clint, good to have you on the program again. And I know we will talk to you more about this with with one of the calls of this being that there be measurable results. So thank you so much for making the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for getting the word out, Jill. Well, the federal court has dismissed a legal challenge to the Prime Minister's May 2020 regulations that ban about 1,500 styles of firearms in this country. This ruling came from Justin Catherine Kane in the decision that was released earlier today, raising the issues around the matter of guns and public safety. But the court was specifically looking at whether or not Justin Trudeau's cabinet went beyond its powers in passing the regulations. Joining me now to talk more about this ruling and what it means is Rod Giltaka, CEO and Executive Director at the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Joe. What specifically do you, uh, how do you interpret this? What does this ruling mean? Well, I, this ruling should be concerning for all Canadians because at the heart of, of this case was the idea that Canadians can own any type of private property and should have some level of recourse if the government just reaches near life and, and grabs whatever whatever you own for whatever its reasons are. And so the use of the order in council and not legislation was a real problem with that. That's that's basically a decree from from whoever the sitting government is. And uh, in this case, we our legal team still believes that the government did not have the authority uh, that it needed to do that. So it's a real problematic ruling, I think, for us and, and for all Canadians who you know, might think that they actually own something the government can't take. 
can you take us back and and uh, kind of refresh what happened? And this was uh, when when the federal government brought out this announcement saying they were going to ban uh, certain styles of firearms. Uh, they, the, this list was put out, and then we did find out that it was going to be the order in council, like you said, it wasn't going to be legislation. Um, can you ref- remind us again or refresh us? What kind of led to that? Well, yeah, the uh, the pretext that was used was the uh, spree shooting in Nova Scotia. And, you know, unfortunately, reality gets into the way of political machinations. And uh, the reality, I was part of that, the public inquiry there. Uh, the reality was the individual that did that shooting smuggled all of his firearms that he used during that shooting from the United States illegally. That was used as a uh, as a, a wedge issue in the in the election that was shortly uh, after that. It was called by the Liberals, and it was used as a pretext to ban Canadians from owning 550 or sorry 1,550 models of firearms. And then on top of that, on the heels of that, the RCMP decided they would ban another 700 models uh, based on the idea that they're variants of the ones that were already banned. So it's massive massive prohibition of private property with no process whatsoever and they've been fighting to defend it ever since and apparently the the courts think that that's okay too and does when the court though has ruled uh, that that she's ruling that say, saying that the issuing the order in council uh, and the subsequent regulations didn't exceed the power of the prime minister and the cabinet is, is she separating the two things and that it could have been anything we happen to be talking about banning firearms but it could have been anything and she's saying that the government of the day who whatever that government might be uh, whatever po- uh, party is in power they do have the right to issue an order in council if they choose to that's that's indeed what she is saying so you know this is the reason why it should be alarming to people i think most canadians i think an an important point is most canadians don't realize that in our system the british parliamentary system the government can pretty much do whatever it wants it can take what it wants whenever it wants for any reason or no reason at all and the reason why we haven't seen that throughout history you know uh, history that we remember in canada is because we've always had governments that were like, you know what, there, there are some things we shouldn't be doing, and we're not going to do those things. They always had the ability to do it. Nobody just, they, they never had the malevolence, if I were to use the word, to do it. Well, this government that we're under right now, this um, liberal NDP government, it absolutely has that, uh, that view on, on the role of government and the people who, who they preside over. And, uh, I think it should be very startling and, and eye-opening for Canadians. Uh, do you think that, though, it's no coincidence that this was done to deal with the issue of firearms and that uh, the current government is hoping that uh, people don't uh, understand? Like you said, even using the Nova Scotia uh, shooting, which killed 22 people, uh, th- those were not guns that were lawfully acquired in this country. Not to say that that, that, that makes it any more OK, but, but without looking at what actually caused that, what led led to that is this kind of ordering council hoping that that people don't look at the details and just look at it maybe even on the surface and think oh well that sounds like a good idea well that's yeah it's 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 all politics there's no there's no public safety reason for what they're doing because we're we're we are intimately uh, acquainted with all of the details when it comes to the firearms issue public safety the regulatory system around firearms there's not a public safety reason for any of this. There are a lot of a lot of loopholes 
in the system that could have been addressed when it comes to licensed gun owners and a lot of issues that need to be addressed uh, when it comes to unlicensed individuals and criminals possessing firearms. The liberal government isn't addressing any of those things. They're going all the way around to the nuclear option aimed directly at people that would have a firearms license. Because if you remember, guns are already prohibited for everyone in Canada to possess any kind of firearm unless you have a license. So that prohibition on, on, on criminals owning firearms, that's been around since the 90s and before, actually. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't about public safety. If, if, if I were to, to ask that Canadians think about one thing and, and just keep one idea in their head, it's not about public safety. That has been demonstrated. This is political, and it's an exercise in, in, in this government's willingness to wield power for right reasons or the wrong reasons. Uh, this, again, is a federal court decision. Is this something that uh, your group or, or those involved, do you think there will be an appeal? There absolutely will be. If there's a, um, our, our team right now, <laughs> we have four people, four lawyers, combing through this decision to determine whether or not there's, um, there's an opportunity for an appeal. But it's a 95% chance we will be appealing it. We will take it all the way to the Supreme Court if that's what it takes. Because Canadians need to know the answer. Can the government reach into your life and grab whatever it is that they want for any reason, any time they like? So far, it looks like the, the, the answer to that question is yes. What does this actually mean then, the, the way that the judgment stands now? And if we, if we suggest, okay, or, or just where we're at with this now that the federal uh, court has ruled on this, what does this mean as far as Canadians who still have uh, guns that were put on this list, have those firearms? Are, does that mean that, that they're, they're going to be confiscated, that's going to still happen? Or what, what does this actually do as far as the order in council becoming, becoming law, really? So this ruling just means that the order in council stands. So things are just like that. They just that's just like they were the second of May in 2020. So we all still have physical possession of our firearms. We can't transfer them. We can't move out of the country with them. We can't shoot them. We can't take them to the uh, to uh, to ranges, which is where these firearms were uh, were the only place that they could be discharged, as far as AR-15s, let's say, is concerned. We just have to sit on them and wait for some buyback program that the Liberals promised three and a half, over three and a half years ago. And we just have to sit here and, and wait for them to be confiscated with or without compensation. You mentioned earlier as well that this really isn't about public safety. This is about politics. And certainly we see when, when the Liberals aren't doing so well in the poll on the, the federal level, they do tend to bring out uh, issues or they, or they tend to start talking about guns and gun control. Uh, is this something that you think would change with a change in government? I, I believe that it would. Um, you know, politics is, politics is a difficult business. And it's very, uh, it's very disconnected from, uh, from the way that humans normally interact with each other in real terms. Uh, but it just seems like the conservatives are, uh, have found their niche, which is just promising to, to, to administrate Canada in some reasonable fashion and have a reason to do things other than whether or not it's going to poll well for them. And whether or not the conservatives fulfill that promise, I don't know. But they are the only party that are sitting here saying, you know, we're going to be reasonable. We're going to be fact-based. We're going to be completely different than the, than the coalition government that you see right now. And uh, right now, I think that's all we can, we can hope for and, and vote for. 
Uh, and can remind me as well, because I think the dates too are, are kind of what gets confusing in that the original dates that were proposed by this government, it seems like a lot of them, if not all of them, have come and gone. Is, is it that things keep getting postponed or extended? Well, are you, I guess you're speaking um, about the gun, the buyback program, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and or even was there not a, a date to when people, if they chose to, could surrender firearms? So there was an amnesty period. So when when the uh, Trudeau government declared all these firearms illegal, too dangerous to own, <laughs> which we've had possession of them for 30 to 100 years, the, the firearms in question, I might add, um, they they made them prohibited, which none most almost all Canadians that have firearms license don't have prohib prohib licenses. So um, we are protected against um, criminal charges based on this amnesty. So as long as we didn't take them out of the house. Well, that amnesty had had to have been extended a couple of times because the Trudeau Liberals promised to have a gun buyback program where everyone would be compensated and then they would take the guns. And everyone that, that really understands what a gun buyback program looks like said, well, this is impossible. Canada is 10 million square kilometers and there's people all over the place. There's, I mean, this is almost impossible to do. And uh, they they wouldn't let reality get in the way of a good political promise, and uh, and thus that's why it's three and a half years later, two extensions have have gone by with the uh, the amnesty, which is still in effect, and no gun buyback on on the horizon. So who knows if it's even really possible? Well, we will wait and see if an appeal is launched, and like you said, uh, possibly going to the the Supreme Court. Do you think it's likely that this is a case that will go to the Supreme Court of Canada? I think it is because there's some very fundamental, um, if I were to use the word freedoms, that we need to, we need an answer whether or not you have any rights, real rights at all in Canada. And, you know, we've seen, I think over the last three years, we've seen a really different, we got a really good look at each other when it comes to, you know, Canadians and the government over the last three years. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people are coming to a lot of different conclusions than they, or different beliefs that they held three years ago. So we need to take this all the way. The CCFR will take it all the way. For as long as this fight needs to be fought, we will. And if that's the Supreme Court, that's fine. But we need an answer to these fundamental questions about our relationship with the government. So we're going to get those answers. Rod, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much, Joe. some sad news out of the entertainment world. As you've likely heard, Matthew Perry, best known for his role as Chandler Bing on the hit sitcom Friends, passed away on Saturday at the age of 54 and so many tributes have been coming in from celebrities, from family members and uh, so many people uh, talking about his life, remembering him and uh, talking about how sad it was. If you've read his memoir, you would know about his struggles with addiction and And what we know at this point about his passing is that he was found unresponsive in his hot tub at his Pacific Palisades home and police responded to a 911 call, but he could not be revived. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about the legacy of Matthew Perry is Rick Forchuk, TV Week magazine columnist. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. 
Oh, my pleasure, Joe. I wish it was a better circumstance today. Yeah, I mean, when that when that news broke and I was with some friends on uh, Saturday and everyone stopped what they were doing and, and just were a bit shocked by this but and saddened and uh, wanting to know more about what happened. What was your response when you first heard about this? Well, interestingly enough, I fell right into his uh, camp. Uh, he had said in his memoir that uh, when he died, people might be surprised but not shocked because they would see it coming. I was surprised, but I was not shocked. He has had such a long string of challenges with addiction, uh, beginning, I think, with alcohol. Uh, when um, Jennifer Aniston on the set of Friends actually approached him, uh, he says this in his memoir and said, we think that you're drinking too much. And when the word we hit him like a sledgehammer, he said, because clearly uh, the entire cast was concerned for him. Uh, his fate seemed to be sealed in 1997, though, Jill. He had a jet ski accident, and that started the addiction to painkillers. He was put on opioids, and uh, as a result, uh, by a year and a half later, he was down to 128 pounds. Uh, he was taking 55 pills a day, and he just wasn't the same person any longer. He's had a medical history of all kinds of serious problems, and um, in his in his uh, talk about his past and his future, he really seemed almost uh, given to the fact that this was going to get him sooner or later. So how did I feel? I was surprised, but I was not shocked, but I was certainly saddened. He's a great talent, and I was really, really sorry to see that his life had ended this way, Jill. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read his memoir when it came out, and and this isn't giving it away to to anybody that that, uh, hasn't read it yet, but it starts with him in a very, very serious situation, uh, recovering in hospital in a scenario where he, he was not supposed to survive. I think he talks about it in the memoir that doctors said he had about a 1% chance of surviving uh, the thing that had landed him in the hospital that time. And, and like you mentioned, Rick, he talks about just how how many uh, opioids he was using and and the amount of times he was in rehab, the the fact that he opened up the Perry house to help others when he when he was when he was doing better. And also when you mentioned friends, and I never realized this when I when I used to watch the show, but he he makes a point, I'm sure you recall in the memoir where he says, you knew when I was drinking because my weight was up and I and I, I was much heavier. You knew when I was on pills because I was gaunt, but nobody really paid attention because Friends was such a cash cow. I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, other than uh, Jennifer Aniston's approaching him, there's no record and nothing that says anything that anybody from the production, none of the producers, none of the directors, nobody ever went to him and said, hey, we think that you're out of control because you're right. Friends was a major cash cow from 1994 to 2004. It was one of the most profitable series on television ever made, and it continues to make bundles of money because it's available in syndication everywhere. And this is sad because we've seen this thing repeated before. Uh, Robin Williams, who died a tragic suicidal death, uh, was also a person that um, those responsible for hiring him and paying him for what he did uh, never said, uh, this guy's a little bit crazy and maybe he needs some help. Uh, Nope, it's the cash cow thing. I think you're absolutely right. And it's very, very sad. Uh, That memoir, by the way, you've read it, I've read it. Uh, For those who haven't, it's called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing 
by Matthew Perry. And uh, it's a very, very interesting read for sure. Uh, when when you read that as well, I found part, uh, really interesting when he goes, I mean, he, he was hilarious and that came through in his writing as well. But when he talks about the fact that he almost didn't get the role in Friends and it was one of his real life, his, his good friends that that turned it down and and that and that how that changed his life he, obviously he's going to be remembered for playing Chandler Bing on that show but do you think that that people will also remember him for, for the movies he did for the other things I know we love to point out the Canadian connection and for the other things that he did in his life well his I think I think he's going to be Chandler Bing he's kind of stuck with that um, just like uh, Kramer on Seinfeld is stuck with Kramer for the rest of his life. He's that character. Uh, and yes, Matthew Perry did some big screen movies. Uh, he was involved in a couple of other TV series, but none of them uh, none of them had the impact or the sort of gravity that this role did. And uh, this is the thing about ensemble comedy, like Friends. It's not about one person. It's about the whole entire batch, the whole family. And they do become family. And as we watch their adventures over the years, uh, we've been in them, and uh, this is the one where he died in the hot tub. But uh, who thought it was going to end that way? Well, uh, I think he probably did at some level. So I'm not sure that his legacy will be much more than uh, Chandler Bing. Uh, and um, I, I think that's okay, because that was his signature role. It's what he did best. It's what he loved best. And I was very surprised to learn as well, uh, and I think this was in one of his interviews that he had done, perhaps with People magazine, that he said for a period of almost three years, he did not even remember making those Friends episodes. He was uh, so wasted. He didn't remember most of those three years. Yeah, very tragic, Jill. Oh, it is, definitely. And, yeah, and I think he mentioned that in the memoir, that he would watch scenes from it and, and have no recollection of when they shot that scene or, or yeah, yeah, exactly that, having, having been there. Uh, did you ever cross paths with him or cover any uh, openings or such where he was there? I never did. Um, and that's interesting because um, he's one of the few people, and then he's got a strong Canadian connection as well, that I didn't ever have an opportunity to interview, and I was never in his presence. And, uh, you know, he was born in uh, Massachusetts, but uh, came to Canada as a baby when his mother and father split up. His mother was Canadian, and uh, she remarried Keith Morrison, uh, then at CTV News, now with NBC in the States. And he lived in Ottawa till he was about 15, and uh, then he went to Los Angeles to live with his uh, biological father. But in all of that, um, Canadian guy, Canadian connection, uh, never did have an opportunity to see him, talk to him, or interview him, Jill. Yeah, and, and certainly the story, and he references this in the memoir of uh, his interactions, I suppose you could say, with Justin Trudeau. And, and again, that connection with his mother being Pierre Trudeau's press secretary, uh, yes. whether or not uh, he beat up Justin Trudeau at school. <laughs> That's true. I'd, I'd forgotten that, but that's exactly right. He's, uh, you know, when you read his memoir, you laugh, and I'm not sure if you cry, but you want to cry at times. Uh, he is a very interesting individual, was an interesting individual, in that uh, even his character, Chandler Bing, had that cynical side to him, and I think Matthew Perry's cynical side was there in real life as well. Interesting guy.
And I think this comes up in the memoir, too, and certainly now when people are looking back at his life, the fact that he he almost didn't get that role. I think if I'm remembering it correctly, that was the last friend they cast was the the character of Chandler Bing. It was going to be somebody else. And and you can't help but wonder, at least I can't help but wonder, how different would the show have been without him in it? I know, that's an interesting point, and I I think about that often, uh, because... um, uh, how different would it have been without any of them? Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine that show with any of them out of the cast and some other individual in there. Uh, but uh, because he was uh, such a kingpin and such a, a central part to that, uh, it just uh, makes me think as we go that uh, this is almost for or, uh, preordained uh, that uh, he should end his life this way, tragically, but when you go through all of the things and read about what he's been through, uh, the kinds of medical problems he's had, the kinds of problems with addiction, uh, getting straight, getting clean, and then starting with substance abuse again, it's just another Hollywood tragedy. And I don't think it was the money. I don't think it was the fame. It was just whatever it is that gets people into this situation with drugs and alcohol that they can't control. And uh, it's a very, very tragic thing. Do you think things have changed in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry itself in that here is somebody who, at least financially and and work-wise, had every opportunity, had had fame, had more money than I think anybody could spend in one lifetime, was truly uh, committed to to getting help at, at certain points in his life, wanted to help others, made it very clear in his book he wanted to help others, but also, like you said, people weren't talking about it. People weren't calling him out or addressing it even when they knew it was going on. Do you think that has changed and that that that, that wouldn't be allowed to have hap- to, to, to play out that way again? I'd like to say it's changed, Joe, but I think maybe it's changing. I don't think it's fully changed. Um, what uh, When you look at the number of times that he says, both in his memoir and through interviews, how he wants to help others, Uh, cope with addiction, cope with these kinds of things. He wants to help other people. And even with all of that, uh, it wasn't the foremost thing that you think about when you talk about Matthew Perry, the fact that uh, he's got a substance abuse problem and he wants to help other people. That part didn't really come out. And each time one of these events occurs, each time the Hollywood machine comes under the spotlight, more happens to advance the, th- the uh, ability to help people. So I think some good will come of his death. The good that will be is that another spotlight is shone on another person, and perhaps it will help another individual who's in a, in a sitcom right now or a drama that's having exactly the same problem. Maybe a producer or a cast member or somebody will approach them and say, hey, let's get you the help you need. Um, I hope that happens. But uh, has it changed? I would say it hasn't changed, but I think it's changing, Joe. All right. We'll leave it there for this afternoon. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you, Joe. Well, starting on January 1st of next year, 2024, any asbestos abatement employers must be licensed to operate 
in B.C. And anyone performing asbestos abatement work must also complete a mandatory safety training course and obtain a certificate. Um, these are WorkSafe B.C. rules that are going to be coming into place on January 1st. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Mary Lovelace, Pre- Director of Prevention Planning and Support Services and Prevention Credentialing with WorkSafe BC. Mary, thank you so much for taking some time. Thanks, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, This was put out as a reminder for people. How big of an issue is it that there are companies or there are are people doing this kind of work with asbestos without any uh, any actual training or or without what what is going to be required? Well, up until now, this has been a major health and safety occupational risk in British Columbia and, and around the country and even around the world. Um, Exposure to asbestos does continue to be the number one cause of workplace fatalities in British Columbia, accounting for about a third of all work-related deaths. So this new requirement is going to ensure that only those who are knowledgeable and qualified to do this work will be able to undertake it. And it will also ensure that employers are upholding the standards of health and safety needed and are aligned with the risk faced by their workers. That seems like a really high number of of workplace deaths that are caused by this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, due to the long latency period um, between exposure to asbestos and the illnesses and deaths that it can cause, a lot of the deaths we're seeing today are the results of exposure from many years ago. Um, So it is the intention of these changes, the licensing and certification requirements, uh, that we can change the way workers face that risk today. So the way it is right now, without these requirements, which again take effect on January 1st, the way it is now, because I think people have often, if you've ever been in this this scenario where you need someone to do this work, you can get quotes from people that are all over the place and thinking that maybe the quotes that are a lot lower are people that are maybe cutting corners. Uh, You see ads for people, companies that do asbestos abatement. So is it kind of a free-for-all right now? Anybody, if you want to set up a company and do this work, you can do that? In a sense. I mean, we do have comprehensive regulations in place now that prescribe exactly how this work should take place. But you're right. Um, companies are, are complying by those regulations at varying degrees. And often those quotes that a homeowner might get um, might be cutting some corners and they wouldn't be aware of it. So one of the primary benefits of these new requirements is that anyone will be able to go to our website. In fact, they can do so now and get a preliminary list of every employer who carries a license to do this work. Um, So this will give that extra layer of transparency so that a homeowner or a prime contract or anyone um, will know that the people undertaking this work are qualified to do so. Uh, so what will people in this industry actually have to do when, when they have to, so they'll have to hold that valid uh, asbestos abatement license and, and be able to do this? What does that actually entail, though, as far as training and, and doing the, the work to get the certificate? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that first step is to get the workers certified, and that step can take some time. Um, so right now, we'd be encouraging any employer or worker in this sector who deals with asbestos abatement to be going to our website and finding a list of designated training providers. Uh, then the workers can undertake that certification, which can take, depending on the certification required, can take a number of days to complete. Um, and that will be the first requirement, the first bar 
that any employer will need to be licensed is that every one of their workers undertaking this work will require that certification. Um, Going forward from there, we'll also be going out and doing inspections of these workplaces to ensure that the workers and the employers are complying with the regulations that are already in place. And is there a cost then for employees to, to get this training? Yep, and the cost does vary by training provider and delivery methods. Some courses are are entirely or predominantly online. Others are in person, so it really varies. Uh, So, again, we really encourage uh, workers and employers to be looking at that information now and finding a training provider that will work for them. Is there any difference then between somebody who's already working in this industry and somebody who's getting into it brand new? There could be. Um, In certain cases, workers who already carry certifications, either from British Columbia or from other provinces, they may qualify for recognition of prior learning or equivalency. We've got a lot of information on our website about that. So if anyone that has been in this sector for a while and already carries a certification, they should go find out um, what um, what the certification program will look like for them. Uh, Will this also, do you think, make a difference in that, uh, like you were saying, this is the leading cause of workplace-related deaths and talking about people who are working directly with asbestos and doing the abatement. I remember covering stories, though, uh, when working in TV uh, of neighbours seeing uh, what they thought uh, didn't make a lot of sense uh, with with crews working with asbestos and, again, raising concerns that this was likely a crew that that wasn't qualified to be doing this and were cutting corners. And they were concerned concerned it was putting them and their health at risk as well. Is this also to protect people, whether you're the homeowner or your neighbor? Oh, absolutely. And, and actually, you know, I can't really stress that point enough. Asbestos, once released into an environment, it affects everyone that will come into contact with it. So, you know, anyone with a concern or a homeowner, for example, who will be undertaking some work, making sure that this is done right by a licensed and qualified contractor is the number one they, thing that they can do not only to keep those workers safe, but for themselves as well. Absolutely. Do we have an idea on how much of an issue this is? I would think as as we replace more older homes and, and this work is done, at some point, I would imagine we're going to get to a spot where there isn't the asbestos risk or the asbestos in buildings, or is it just such a big issue that this is going to be around for quite a while? Yeah, I don't have a sense if we're getting to that point. Uh, won't that be a great day to get to? But at this point, it is still a uh, it's still an issue, and a lot of older homes now are being demolished to make way for newer uh, buildings. And also, a lot of people in older buildings are realizing that they may not be in the position to upgrade to that dream home, and they're undertaking renovations to get them the extra space that they need. So all of these are circumstances where asbestos in older buildings is is continuing to be disrupted. Did you come up with these requirements as well, working with industry and and is industry on board? You know, absolutely. And and I can say, having been involved in a number of these types of uh, regulation implementations before, I can say this is probably the the most broad-level endorsement that we've seen. You know, the sector, the employers, industry associations, uh, and, and the workers themselves uh, overwhelmingly recognize the need for um, additional measures to ensure that everyone is kept safe. And again, so remind people, or if anybody is in this business and uh, and is just uh, remembering now that this comes into play January 1st, so what, what actually do, do employees and employers have to have done by January 1st? Uh, so the first step for a worker is to get a training program and a certification. 
So all of the information for the training providers and all of the program information is on our website. Uh, so they can find a training provider, get registered, and get through that training program so they have their certificate in hand by January 1st. For an employer, they will need to uh, undertake a licensing application. The form and all additional information is on our website. And that also can take some time. Although it can be quick to fill out the application form, uh, it can take a number of weeks for the application to be processed. So we're really getting into the period of time now where we're encouraging everyone to make sure that they understand the requirements and they're taking steps towards um, achieving the certification or license. All right. It is uh, a timely reminder for anybody in that industry and uh, moving forward. Mary Lovelace, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it very much. This is such a cool story. And as you just heard on the news, there is a new cafe, the Paper Plains Cafe, open at YVR. And, well, it is all about brewing an inclusive employment opportunity as well as an inclusive space. And joining me to talk more about this, I have a couple of great guests here. Tamara Vruman, YVR president and CEO, and Sergio Kokia, board chair and president of the Pacific Autism Family Network. Thank you so much to both of you for being with me. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Jill. And Sergio, I, did I even come close to saying your last name correctly? Yeah, well, close enough. Kokia. <laughs> Kokia. All right. I, I knew as I was saying it, it didn't sound right. So my, my apologies. Not at all. Uh, Tamara, I wanted to start with you if I could, because uh, this uh, this information came out uh, from, from YVR and, and with the, the network, but this is going to be located at YVR. So can you tell us a little bit, where is this and what does the Paper Plains Cafe look like? Yeah, we're delighted to be opening the Paper Plains Cafe uh, to our airport community and the public today. It's located in the domestic arrivals hall. So for those of you who have either met uh, a loved one coming off uh, a domestic flight or been there to pick up your luggage, you'll know it's on the second floor of our airport. Very busy part of our airport. You know, we, ex- we see about 10 million uh, people walking through that area each and every year. So it's in a very busy location and we think it's just going to be a great opportunity to provide training in a real-time, real-life environment uh, for people on the autism spectrum. They'll, it's like New York, right? They'll have great success uh, in the airport and then through that success be able to go on to other employment opportunities at YVR or beyond. And Sergio, I want to bring you in again with the Pacific Autism Family Network. How important is it to have a space like this that is specifically uh, geared to being inclusive and addressing some of those concerns? Well, it's incredibly important, and kudos to to YBR for leading and and uh, uh, working with us to to accomplish this. Uh, I mean, this is part of a, a really important part of getting meaningful employment for these hundreds of thousands of Canadians across the country who are under unemployed as a result of their neurodiversity and the fact that they just can't attain what what they have a right to, which is is great employment. So this is part of that. We have, you know we've been running pre training. Uh, opportunities through the center where we, uh, you know, through a federal program, we're teaching people about employment, how to fill out a resume, et cetera. But this is real life employment now. And the unique thing about this is that the trainees are on a set uh, period of time for training. They have a skills acquisition table that they need to attain in order to move on to employment. And they're paid while they're there and paid a living wage through 
five years. So it's really meaningful, real employment for people. And then they're supported by us in finding employment, whether in YVR or with uh, food and beverage providers around the, the city. And then we support those employers and their staff afterwards to ensure that you know, the awareness and the uh, acceptance of these individuals continues. And does it does it also take into account maybe the the different abilities whether maybe somebody is nonverbal or or somebody doesn't doesn't function really well in in a very busy environment like we would often see at an airport and, and make sure that the, that they're set up for success and still able to be employed. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jill. And I mean, that's the challenge for many of our kids. Even accessing the place of employment is, is a bit of a challenge. But, you know, when we help to teach them, help them to, to come up with strategies, spend the time to, to, to focus on their needs and on the ways that they need to communicate, we're able to, to you know, to have really meaningful uh, uh, outcomes for them. And it, it takes people and organizations like YVR to step up and give us those spaces and make us comfortable and at home there. Uh, Tamara, I'll bring you back in as well in that this is being uh, uh, put out there as the first, I think, the first of its kind in a Canadian airport. So what was it that that led to this being the first of its kind and that it found a home at YVR? Well, we certainly um, see all sorts of people with diverse needs coming through uh, our airport. And as you know, you know, 25 million people come through YVR each and every year. But we're also a place, uh, we're a large employer. Uh, so 26,000 people work at YVR. And we have a diverse range of jobs and a diverse um, range of, of needs to fill those jobs. And so the partnership and the and tremendous support that we've received from, from Surge and the Pacific Autism Family Network allowed us to create meaningful uh, employment, allow people with potential to have the supports that they need to thrive in a real-time, real-life situation, and provide yet another opportunity to showcase our community what makes us different and have a great cup of coffee to serve our customers in the airport. So it really was a a win-win, and we're we're pretty excited about the potential. Will it look any different than other cafes, or that if a a traveler or a passenger is going by and, and wants a coffee? coffee or, or wants something there, will the Paper Plains Cafe, will, will there be anything that actually identifies it as this particular, uh, this uh, kind of venture? Well, when you look, take a look at the Paper Plains Cafe, first of all, it's a beautiful space. And so, you know, sometimes when employers try and do the right thing and create opportunities for neurodiverse people to have employment in their organization, they put them off to the side or give them half uh, a job. That's not the case here. This is a fully functioning cafe, as beautiful as any that you would see in the airport and that our, our passengers and public have come to expect. It's called the Paper Plane Cafe. It celebrates the fact that uh, you're being uh, served an excellent cup of coffee from somebody who's neurodiverse and on the spectrum and allows you to get a cup of coffee while supporting somebody to build a meaningful career. So we're very excited about it. And Sergio, how important is that, that it does kind of look like any other cafe or or is there also a need that that people maybe in some uh, circumstances would want to know or would maybe want to support the cafe more or 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 do do they need to know that that the people working in the cafe are, are people with autism? 
Well, we, we, I mean, we don't hide the fact that we're training, that we're a training facility and that we're helping people, you know, move on and, and find employment and, and move on with their lives. But it really, at the end of the day, it is a coffee shop. And I guess what I might add, though everyone at uh, YVR is so friendly, what you're going to find at our place is some great smiling faces of people that you should stop and meet because being aware of their unique challenges and their unique abilities and the unique type of individuals they are, are how we enrich ourselves as a community. And, and you know, that it's a, it, it'll be a wonderful place to visit and uh, come by Jill I'll buy you the first cup <laughs> perfect um, how was the response as far as people applying for jobs and wanting to work there Oh, it's fantastic. We're full. We've uh, the first cohort. I think is fifteen. Uh, we'll uh, as we extend our hours and work on different opportunities. Uh, we think we can get up to about thirty uh, at a time on you know smaller shifts because you know some of these individuals can't really manage an eight-hour day. So you know we'll be working uh, uh, with that. And and it's only because we have such a unique and wonderful location that we're able to do that economically. Because you can imagine the cost with the, trying to employ that many people. But it's uh, I, I don't think there's there's going to be any lack of demand for individuals wanting to get training and, and placement. All right. And, and Tamara, have you heard anything from other airports or do you think this is something that might be embraced by other uh, big airports as well? We certainly hope so. And we're really looking forward to being able to share the success and the learnings of developing this kind of uh, commercial offering and creating this kind of uh, employment with uh, with our colleagues across the country. So we're certainly hoping it's an idea that catches on. Well, it's uh, certainly a welcome addition. I know a lot of people will definitely want to go check it out. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks for your interest, Jill. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.